You may be seated. And will you join me now in a prayer for illumination? Lord, you tell us that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we come to your word this morning with a hunger and thirst for your truth, your wisdom, your love and grace. Sanctify us by your word and spirit so that we may glorify you with our lives, both individually and collectively as your church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last week was Pentecost, and Harry led us through the passage in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the first followers of Jesus and how now we as the church are still called to love God, to love one another, and to love others in the world who do not know God in Christ. As I mentioned in the the welcome time, today in the church calendar is called Trinity Sunday. And, you know, most of the special church calendar days remember or celebrate an event that happened in the Bible, like, you know, obviously Pentecost, uh, this Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples, Easter, Monday, Thursday, uh, Christmas, obviously, and other times in the church calendar, it celebrates more of a, or it's a practice of ritual, like Lent, um, Ash Wednesday, Advent, but Trinity Sunday celebrates a doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity is the fundamental belief of the Christian faith. And the celebration of Trinity Sunday, I thought this was interesting. It was, it was a lot older than I suspected, which I didn't really know what I suspected, I guess, until I was kind of reading this little paragraph. And I actually found this on the PCUSA's website. It said, the celebration of Trinity Sunday began among Western Christians in the 10th century and was developed slowly until it was formally established on the uh, Sunday after Pentecost by Pope John the 22nd in the 1300s. So for a thousand years, Christians have been gathering to celebrate this fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, the Trinity. But really, don't we hope that every Sunday is Trinity Sunday? We gather here every week to worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that the idea of the Trinity, you know, it's not some obscure notion or secondary tenet of the Christian faith. It is central to the Christian faith and to what we believe through the scriptures. Well, this morning, since we are fresh on the heels of Pentecost and it being Trinity Sunday, I thought we would try to tackle a passage that speaks to the power of the Spirit, but in a very Trinitarian way. I hope that makes more sense as we get going. But I want to also note real quickly that the word Trinity itself doesn't appear in the Bible. That, that's a word that was developed in order to try to define, to try to describe the full essence of God. Try being three and if triune God, unity being the second part of that, or trinity, tri-unity. Well, as we go through this, through our text together, I want you to just kind of take a mental note 
of the references to God, God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Because we will see all three working closely together here. So our sermon text this morning is 1 Corinthians. begins at the very end of chapter 1, uh, verse 30, and goes through chapter 2, verse 16. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come pre- or proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom Though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish, but we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things not, or in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things, And they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now it's kind of a long little passage this morning, but did you catch the number of references to God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? all the persons of the Trinity present in that passage. And in Paul's discourse here, which he really begins earlier in chapter 1, which I didn't read, uh, one thing that I think Paul is getting at in this is that divine wisdom and power are inherent and unified in the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's kind of a big statement. I'm going to just Read that one again kind of slowly. Divine wisdom and power are inherent and unified in the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's kind of walk through that real quick. First, I want to note what Paul does with this idea of wisdom and power. 
God's wisdom and God's power are so closely connected, so much so that Paul might even say they're synonymous, or at least maybe two sides to the same coin. God's wisdom and God's power are, to Paul, inseparable. So taking wisdom, for example, to start, what Paul says in Corinthians is that the cross was an act of God's divine wisdom. Jesus' act on the cross was displaying God's wisdom. God foreordained the cross as a means to pay the debt and penalty of sin, to bring forgiveness of sin, and to give victory over death and eternal life through Christ's resurrection. God's wisdom also declares that true victory is not found in human conquest or human power, which is what the world, worldly wisdom believes, but that true victory is secured through Christ's sacrifice for others, which again is ultimately displayed on the cross of Christ. And equally true is that the cross of Christ is the power of God. It's the wisdom of God, and it's the power of God. And that's what uh, Paul says. He says, for the message about the cross, this gospel message, this God's wisdom, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in verse 24, Paul even speaks of Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. He connects those two ideas in the person of Jesus himself. So God's wisdom and God's power, they're not independent of one another, but connected to one another. So that, that's the first thing I want to note, but what about the, the fuller claim that divine wisdom and power are inherent and unified in the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, Paul spends a lot of effort in the beginning part of 1 Corinthians expounding on the wisdom of God. And he says something that I found interesting in our text that I did read today in chapter 2, verse 7. He says, but we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Divine wisdom has always existed because God has always existed. We see this idea present in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, which fittingly is a, you know, a book of wisdom. Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, by understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Proverbs 8 also talks about the representation of wisdom being present before creation and ordering the cosmos. And in the New Testament, John, in his famous uh, chapter 1, speaks of Jesus as the Word. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. That Greek word for word that we use there is logos, or logos, depending on which uh, Greek scholar is talking. It's a word that it means knowledge, it means speech, it means word, but it also, in context, meant wisdom. And in this 
especially kind of in this first century time period. And with this logic, it's, it's as if John is saying, in the beginning was wisdom, the word, Jesus, God. And nothing came into being without God's wisdom, without Jesus, without the Father, without the Holy Spirit. Wisdom is always present with God because God is wise. Divine wisdom is inherent in God, in Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit from all eternity. Meaning that wisdom is a very real and consistent attribute of the nature and character of the triune God. To say that God is wise is comparable to saying, you know, like, the ocean has water. Well, yeah, the ocean has water. God is wise. But it was in God's wisdom that he created the cosmos. And God's wisdom continues to sustain all things even now. God is wise in all his works, his decrees, his judgments, everything. God cannot act contrary to wisdom because, again, by nature, God is all-wise. There is no folly with God. And God's wisdom is so much greater than our worldly wisdom. Because in reality, what Paul's getting at here is worldly wisdom isn't really wisdom at all. Worldly wisdom says the cross doesn't make sense. That's foolishness. A king, the Messiah, can't die on a cross. Worldly wisdom values earthly power and fame and wealth and success and self-promotion. But worldly wisdom is a facade. It's fake. It's hollow. It's folly. It leads to destruction. But God's wisdom, Paul explains, is supremely displayed on the cross of Christ, which is the ultimate power over all things. And God's wisdom leads not to destruction, but to life. Well, here in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes, he makes this really insightful comparison between God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. But I want us just for a second to have that in mind, but we need to take a step back and ask the important question, why? Why does Paul do this? Why does he care so much about making this point between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom? Is Paul explaining this tension because he's trying to write some kind of theological polemic to debate with an atheist at the time? Is this his argument for people who don't believe in Christ? Well, to answer the why, we have to kind of first answer the who. Who is Paul writing to? He's not writing to non-followers of Jesus. He's writing to the church community in Corinth. Paul himself had planted the church in Corinth, which was sometime between 48 and 51 AD. And what we have as our letter or book of 1 Corinthians was actually likely his, at least his second letter to the Corinthians because he mentions a previous letter. We don't have it. We don't have the words of that letter, but we know that he was in correspondence with this, with this community. We also know that he wrote this letter from Ephesus, and he later mentions, he mentions that in his letter. And coincidentally for us, he also tells us when he wrote it. It was just before uh, the celebration of Pentecost. So, you know, just we just celebrated its anniversary maybe last week or week before, depending on exactly when he wrote it. 
But from the time that Paul was in Corinth, planting this church and kind of nurturing its, its birth, to the time that he wrote this letter, it had been approximately as short as two years, as long as maybe seven years. But during those two to seven years, this church community in Corinth had been having troubles, conflict, disagreements. They, things were kind of going awry. And so Paul's letter to them was less a theological treaty. It, it wasn't a textbook of doctrine. It was more driven by a pastoral concern for the people. And I think that's really important to note because, you know, we talk again about this idea of wisdom of God and wi worldly wisdom, and it kind of it sounds very theoretical and like he's writing kind of a theological textbook, but he's, he's really trying to get to something here. He's being very pastoral with them. If Paul knows that if anything can kill a church, it's not the attacks from the outside, it's the infighting within. And so Paul, he's, he's creative in this. He doesn't go straight to the issues and say, okay, let's just kind of go through the bullet list and kind of get through these issues. No, he stops them. He gets to those later, but he starts his letter on this topic of setting this dichotomy. There's godly wisdom and there's worldly wisdom. And he wants to remind his brothers and sisters, you know, you're not to live by worldly wisdom. You are called to live by godly wisdom. The Spirit of God abides in you. You should have the mind of Christ and live according to the holy wisdom of God. And he makes it clear to them in verse 30, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And he continues to remind them, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, when I was with you in person, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words of wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Coming back to the point, this is what it's about. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not pl plausible words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that, here's kind of his point, whenever you get a so that, you know, pay attention to what he's about to say. So that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. He's trying to orient them back to God's ways. Quit pursuing your, your selfishness, your preferences. Go back to what God desires for you. Rely on the power of God. And he reinstates this again in verse 12 when he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, so that, he throws in another so that, we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. Remember your calling. Remember what God has done for you in Christ and live in that reality. Don't lose sight of that. Paul really labors, almost takes pains to, to explain this point that there are two types of wisdom. God's wisdom, which leads to truth and life, and worldly wisdom, which is foolish and deceitful and leads to destruction. Well, you might be wondering, okay, 
we get it. There's two types of wisdom. There's this conflict in this church. Is there something going on in our church that we don't know about? No, it's nothing like that. I, I think our church is a pretty healthy church. Um, but I wanted to preach this today because I wanted us to realize, you know, that each day we are presented with a choice. Even as Christians, even as members of the body of Christ, we're going to walk in God's wisdom. Are we going to walk in pursuit of our own selfish gains? Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth that in Christ, their perspective, their value system, their way of thinking, their uh, behaving needs to change. It's not about promoting themselves over others. It's not about, you know, my preferences over yours. It's not about who's popular or of one's wealth or pedigree. It's not about all the stuff the world values. It's about seeking God's wisdom for your life and for the community. It's about living in humility with love for God and love for one another. Later in Paul's letter, so 1 Corinthians, it's kind of a longer letter. And later in the letter, you know, you get to those great passages where he talks about how in Christ we are one body. Though we are many parts and we all have our gifts, we are all working together as one body in Christ. And it's right after that that he goes into the, the famous love passage, you know, not written for romantic relationships or weddings. It's written for the church that love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. How's that a message for the church? That's what it looks like to live with holy wisdom. That's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. So I want to ask a, a quick question. Who's ever done anything dumb? Probably both hands for me. Okay, and I don't mean just like, you know, tripping over steps or a curb, which I did recently, but who's ever done anything dumb in which you just really acted poorly or selfishly or you've hurt someone else or completely overreacted to something or just completely failed to act with grace or just made a downright poor decision. Who's ever done anything dumb like that? I know I have. I hope I'm not the only one. If I was the only one, I was like, okay, y'all can leave. I'll, I'll stay and repent. Um, gosh, I just, it's one of the worst feelings when it's that kind of failure, in a sense. That, that sense of shame, embarrassment, remorse, resentment. Uh, you know, those are the moments in life that you wish you could take back, if you could. Or that you wish you could have handled differently if given the chance. I remember um, kind of my earliest memory of really feeling that way. I was in the fourth grade. I was staying the night at a friend's house. It was the first and only time I was invited to stay at their house. Um, and <laughs> they had uh, taken, taken us out to eat to this Mexican restaurant. And I'd go there a lot with my grandparent. And, you know, I always was forced to get, like, the kid's meal. And... I was always envious that my granddad would get like the fajita plate, you know, like the $15, $20 fajita plate, and it's sizzling, and like you're walking through the restaurant, and the steam's going, it looked really cool. 
And I was never able to get it because, you know, I'm a kid, get your kid's meal, that's too expensive for you. Well, I was with uh, my friend's family, so I thought, hey. Oh. Okay. Uh, I was like, hey, I don't think they're going to tell me no. So this, you know, this is my opportunity. I'm going to get the fajita plate. And so, you know, they asked me what I wanted, or, and, I, and I told them, and they kind of gave me this look like, you sure you don't want it? And they were kind of like showing me the other part of the menu, but like, I was in the fourth grade. I was like, in my head, I was like, no, that's what I want. That's what I want. And I just, I didn't pick up on it then, but I could just see kind of their face and just kind of like this, like, kind of offended look that I was like demanding the fajita plate. And then I, obviously I didn't eat it all because it was way too much food for a fourth grader. But I remember looking back on that and be like, gosh, that was so selfish. Like that was my first memory of just having a, a moment when I just really felt ashamed. That like I was just so selfish in that moment. And there's been plenty of other moments. That's just the first one that I remember that you know, sometimes we just miss the mark. We take our eyes off Christ. And maybe it's because of our ego, our pride, our anger takes hold, our jealousy of someone else, our envy, greed, lust, insecurity. And we act out of worldly wisdom. We completely mess it up. But it's important to remember Paul's message that though worldly wisdom is foolish, and ultimately leads to destruction, godly wisdom gives us freedom and joy and hope and life. And he continues to point our eyes back to God's love for us in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit gives us knowledge of God's saving work in Christ. And it is also in wisdom that we are called to live out our calling as the body of Christ and individually as members of it. The Spirit gives us wisdom for how we are to go about our lives, both in our private lives and in our public lives, in our private thoughts and in our doing. Walking according to God's wisdom necessarily means that we are not at the same time going to give in to the desires of the flesh. Those two things cannot coexist simultaneously. To walk in God's wisdom means not being enticed by shallow, cheap, petty, trivial, meaningless, selfish, toxic things that lead to destruction. To walk in God's light is to walk in godly wisdom. And holy wisdom follows humility. And humility follows faith. And faith follows God's grace for us. What I mean to say by this is, oh, can you go back to that last slide? What I mean to say is, it all begins with God's grace for us. And in God's grace, we are given the gift of faith. And through our faith and living out our faith, we are called to live in humility. And when we submit ourselves to God and to one another, we are living in holy wisdom. It all starts with God's grace. And I think the fork in the road for us really is, is that idea of humility. And that's what Proverbs tells us. It says, uh, Proverbs fifteen thirty three: the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility goes before honor. 
When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but wisdom is with the humble. So holy wisdom must first show humility. Humility first spiritually before God, and second, show humility in our, in our mindset, just in our perspective, our way of thinking, and show humility in our actions towards others. Living with God's wisdom transforms our hearts, our minds, and our actions. It changes us from selfish thinking to selfless thinking. And in humility, we seek not to promote ourselves, but to promote the greater good in Christ. And we no longer seek to satisfy the desires of the self, but we seek to glorify God in all that we do. So my encouragement for you, church, is to live in God's wisdom. It all starts with God's grace, the gift of faith, and the pursuit of, of God's wisdom through humility. I pray that for us all. In this time of uh, offering, I invite you to use this time as a time of prayer and centering yourself and just coming before God, confessing before God those areas in which you just feel like you need to, to confess and to ask God to show you wisdom, to guide you, to point you in the right direction so that you would be an ambassador for Christ and to show God's love in this world. Amen.
pray, prayer for illumination. Lord, you tell us that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So may we come to your word this morning with a hunger and thirst for your truth, your wisdom, and your love and grace. Sanctify us by your word and spirit so that we may glorify you with our lives, both individually and collectively as your church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, last week was Pentecost, and Harry led us through the passage in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the first followers of Jesus and how we as God's church are called to love God, love one another, and love others in the world who do not know God in Christ. Well, today, I didn't mention this earlier, but today in the church calendar is called Trinity Sunday. And, you know, most of the special days we observe in the calendar related to events in in the Bible, such as Pentecost. That's something we celebrate because Pentecost happened in the Bible. There's Easter, uh, Monday, Thursday, obviously Christmas. Um, Other times in the church calendar are more based off of ritual and practice, like the season of Lent, Um, you know, maybe the um, observing Ash Wednesday or Advent. But what's interesting about Trinity Sunday is it celebrates a doctrine of the church. And not only that, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is the fundamental belief of the Christian faith. And the celebration, I I found this interesting. Um, I didn't really know when Trinity Sunday started, but I didn't suspect that it was as old as it is. And I was surprised to learn, and I learned this, I found this little sentence on the PCUSA's website, says that the celebration of Trinity Sunday began among Western Christians in the 10th century and developed slowly until it was formally established on the Sunday after Pentecost by Pope John the 22nd in the 1300s. So for the past thousand years, Christians have been gathering to remember and to celebrate this doctrine that is the doctrine of the Trinity. But really, you know, we do hope that every Sunday is Trinity Sunday, right? (laughs) We don't, you know, just parse this out. Every Sunday for us should be Trinity Sunday. We gather here every week to worship, to praise, to thank the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that the idea of the Trinity is not some obscure notion or theoretical concept. It's not a secondary tenet of the faith. It is central to what we believe through the words of Scripture. Well, this morning, since we are fresh on the heels of Pentecost, and since today is Trinity Sunday, I thought we would try to tackle a passage that speaks to the power of the Spirit, but in a very Trinitarian way. I hope that makes more sense as we, as we walk through it, but uh, it's a little bit of a passage here, so stick with me. But I want you to notice as I read, just listen for the words of God, and Paul kind of meaning God the Father in those cases, um, Jesus or Christ, and the Holy Spirit. They work together in such a beautiful way in this passage. So listen now to uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 30, uh, going through the end of chapter 2. 
God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish, but we speak God's wisdom secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things, and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right, so here's the pop quiz. How many times did you hear God, Jesus, and Holy Spirit? No, I'm not going to ask you that. But I hope you at least kind of heard and kind of felt that, that revolving kind of relationship between uh, the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. All the persons of the Trinity present in this passage. And in Paul's discourse here, which it's really a longer, I know I already read a lot, and so I didn't want to add any more to that, but if you back up more into chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, you get a lot more of Paul's explanation of God's spirit, God's wisdom, and how God is working in and through Jesus Christ on our behalf. But one thing I think that Paul is getting at is this, divine wisdom and power are inherent and unified in the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know you're thinking, Tyler, it is Sunday morning. Don't throw sentences out like that. But let's just try to, I'll, I'll go through it again kind of slowly, and then we're going to piece it apart a little bit. Divine wisdom and power are inherent and unified in the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So walking through that a little bit. First, I want to note that God's wisdom and God's power for Paul are so closely connected. So much so that maybe if we, you know, had time to, or had the opportunity to grab lunch with Paul and asked him, 
he might say that those two concepts are almost synonymous with one another, or at least maybe two sides to the same coin, that God's wisdom and God's power are inseparable from one another. They are present in in the creation of the universe. They are present in the government and the, the sustaining of the universe, and they are present in the cross of Christ. And that's really what Paul says in Corinthians, is that the cross of Christ is an act of God's divine wisdom and God's divine power on our behalf. So we know the cross means that it represents that God has paid the debt and penalty of sin. It brings forgiveness of sin to us. It gives us victory over death and eternal life through Christ's resurrection. And it's all according to God's wisdom and God's power. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18, for the message about the cross, you know, this message, this gospel, this God's wisdom in that sense, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul even speaks of Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's his quote right there. He puts the two together. Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, joined together and embodied in Christ. So God's wisdom and power are not independent of one another, but they're connected with one another. So that's the first thing I wanted to note. But now what about this, that God's wisdom and power are inherent and unified in the triune God? Well, this means that God's wisdom and power are part of the character and nature of God himself. In our reading today, uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What I think Paul's kind of pointing us back to is that divine wisdom has always existed because God has always existed. By God's wisdom, creation was born and ordered. And we see this idea present in in the book of Proverbs, which is good for us because it's a book of wisdom, right? In Proverbs 3, it says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. And this really continues on in, in Proverbs 8, where it talks about this representation of wisdom being present Um, before the creation and ordering of the cosmos. But we also see it in the New Testament with Jesus. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, was this, this, this knowledge, this wisdom. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. Divine wisdom is inherent in God, in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. Meaning it's an attribute of the nature and character of the triune God. God is the source of that wisdom. And God is wise in all his works, in all his acts of creation, in all his decrees, in all his judgments, everything. God cannot act contrary to wisdom. Because by nature, God is all wise, and there is no folly in God. 
But what Paul does also in 1 Corinthians is he, he creates this dichotomy between God's wisdom and the wisdom of this world and how God's wisdom is so much greater than worldly wisdom. Because I think in Paul's mind, in reality, worldly wisdom isn't really even wisdom at all. Worldly wisdom, you know, says that the cross is foolishness. That doesn't make sense. Kings and messiahs don't die on a cross. But Paul says that is the power of God, the wisdom of God. The world's wisdom values earthly power, fame, wealth, success, self-promotion. But worldly wisdom is a facade. It's fake. It's hollow. It's plastic. And it leads to destruction. But God's wisdom, as Paul explains, is first and foremost displayed on the cross of Christ, which is the ultimate power over all things. And God's wisdom leads us to life. I want to take a step back for a moment. So Paul, sometimes just read, read the, at least the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians and then keep going from there if you want. But he really kind of labors this point, creating this dichotomy between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. But the question for us is why? Why does he do this? Why does he labor so much to, to set this up? You know, on the surface, we might think if we're just reading that, well, he's creating this kind of, uh, you know, apologetic argument uh, for those who don't believe in God or Christ and those who do. Or maybe he's, you know, just trying to make a theological debate. Or maybe he's setting up his argument for people who don't believe in Christ. But that's not what he's doing here. But before we ask why, a better question to start with is who? Who is, who is Paul writing to? The Corinthians. The church in, in Corinth. He's writing to the church community. Paul himself had planted the church in Corinth and sometime between 48 and 51 AD. And the letter that we have as 1 Corinthians probably wasn't his first letter that he wrote. He actually kind of mentions other letters in, in his, the letters that we do have. But he has this relationship with this church and between the time of when he was with them to the time that he wrote this letter somewhere between you know the shortest range about two years longest range about seven years somewhere in that two to seven year time the church community in Corinth was experiencing troubles from within internal struggles conflicts disagreements and Paul's letter to them it's not this heady theological treaty. It's not this textbook of doctrine, you know, saying, okay, here's everything of the Christian faith. You know, memorize this. His point is he's, he's writing this because he's pastorally concerned for them. And we see this early on in chapter 1. We don't have to read very far. Verse 10, he, he says, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. He tells us, you know, his, his kind of where he's going with this. But right after this, he doesn't just start saying, okay, you know, here's your beef with this person. Here's how you fix this. Here's your beef with this person. 
he doesn't go into this. He takes them a step back and he says, let's talk about godly wisdom. And let's talk about worldly wisdom. Paul wants them to see that if their perspective is right, if their hearts are geared toward following Christ with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving one another, that's what matters. That's what's, that's what's going to set the stage for then how this community is going to interact and live and grow with one another in Christ. He's writing this to remind his fellow brothers and sisters that they are not to live with a mindset that is worldly wisdom, but that the Spirit of God abides in them, and they should have the mind of Christ and live according to the holy wisdom of God. And he makes this clear, I think, in, in verse 30. He says, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He reminds them that, you know, when he first went to them, he didn't come proclaiming wisdom and, you know, having all this high and language and all this stuff. He came with them. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirits or with the spirit and of power. So that, whenever you get a so that in the Bible, you might circle it or something because he's, he's telling you something. This matters so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. And you, church, your faith is not governed by human wisdom. It's governed by the power of God. So that, and this is what he says later in verse 12, we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. To keep everything in perspective, what God has done for us through, in Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. We need to keep that in mind in all our, our relationships and as, as the church together. So as I'm trying to kind of labor and explain this point as Paul was doing, two types of wisdom, godly wisdom, which, le- which is truth and life, and worldly wisdom, which is foolish and deceitful and leads to destruction, I preach this today, not because we have a lot of church turmoil or anything like that. <laughs> I hope you're not sitting there thinking, like, what's going on in the church that we need to... No, it's just, we have a decision every day. When we get up, when we go out our doors, when we leave these doors from this church today, we have a choice before us to walk in God's wisdom or to walk in the wisdom of the world, which again, is not wisdom. Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth that in Christ, their perspective, their value system, their way of thinking, their way of behaving changes. It's not about promoting themselves over others. It's not about my preferences over yours. It's not about who's popular or wealthy or, you know, about one's pedigree. It's not about any of that stuff the world values. It's about seeking God's wisdom for your life and for us as the community. It's about living in humility with love for God and one another. Later in Paul's letter, so he does go through kind of some of the issues at hand. 
but it's later in Paul's letter that we find the great passage about, you know, that in Christ we are the body of Christ. Though we are many members, you know, we all have different gifts and acts of service, we're all joined together as one body for one mission, for one purpose, under one faith, with one Lord. And right after that passage, we get the famous love passage, which isn't written for weddings, it's not written for romantic couples, it's not just written for your, you know, wall in your bedroom, it's written for the church. He's writing this in the context of 1 Corinthians, all the, the strife happening within the church. And this is where he says, you know what, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It, is not, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. How's that for a call for a church? How's that for a mission statement? That's what it looks like to live with holy wisdom. That's the Holy Spirit at work in your life and in the life of a church. Okay, quick question. Who has ever done anything dumb? Well, okay, there's more. Y'all have done more dumb things than that. Let's try that again. Who's ever done anything dumb? Just be honest. Okay, that's a little better. Like, there was only like 25% that first round. I'm not buying it. Goodness. Okay, so, you know, we do dumb things by accident. You know, we trip over a curb like I did the other day. It's fine. No one saw, but I'm telling everyone, so it's whatever. But what about the dumb things that we do that really affect us? When we act poorly, selfishly, when we hurt someone, when we completely overreact to something, when we completely fail to act with grace, or we just, we just downright make a poor decision. Who's ever done anything dumb like that? I won't make you raise your hand, but I know I have. It's one of the worst feelings, that sense of shame, embarrassment, guilt, remorse, those are the moments you wish you could take back if you could. You never really forget them. You know, you would have handled it differently if given the chance. I remember the, the first memory that I have of, of feeling like that was in the fourth grade, and I was staying the night at one of my friend's houses. <laughs> it was the only night I was invited to stay at their house. Might be why. No, it, was, it wasn't terrible, but I just, I just remember this because I just felt so ashamed afterwards. But, and it's a silly story, but so I was staying at their house, and they wanted to, to take us out to dinner, and they took us to this Mexican food restaurant that my grandparents would always take me to. Now, when I would go there, you know, they would make me get, my grandparents would make me get, like, the, the kid's menu, because I'm a kid, and it's cheaper, and it's less food. But my granddad would always get the fajita plate, and, you know, they walk through the restaurant, and it's sizzling, and it's smoking, it looks like a volcano, and it sets it down, and, you know, it's all this food. It looks awesome. And I, and I like, you know, he'd always give me a piece or two. I was like, it's so good. This is what I want. So anyway, so I'm there with my friend's family. And I'm like, well, they're not going to tell me no. So I want the fajita plate. And I remember they, they looked at me like, what? And I was like, yep, I want the fajita plate. Like, you sure you don't want that? I was like, nope, I want the fajita plate. I was just like so insistent because I was going to get this fajita plate finally for me. And, and I didn't see it then, but like, I don't know. <laughs> Whenever it started hitting me, I was like, 
I was such a little brat then. Like, not all the time. It was just this, this one time. But uh, I don't think anyone's ever heard that story. So, Mom, if you watch later, I apologize on your behalf. You're a good parent. You didn't cause that. Um, but I just remember, like, looking back on that, and I just, just feel ashamed that I did. I wish I could go back and change that moment, that impression that I made on that family. Like, I didn't even eat all the fajita plates. They, you know, everyone knew kids don't eat that much. Anyway, silly story, but there's times in our life when we just look back and we just know, really missed the mark. I wish I could change that. And a lot of times these moments happen when we take our eyes off Christ. Maybe it's because of our ego, our pride, our anger, our jealousy, our envy, greed, lust, insecurity. Then we act out of worldly wisdom. We take what we want. We take for ourselves. And we completely mess it up. Well, the Holy Spirit gives us knowledge of God's saving work in Christ. But also wisdom in living out our callings as the body of Christ and individually as members of it. The Spirit gives us wisdom for how we are to go about our lives, both in, in the, you know, our private lives and in our public lives, in our thinking and in our doing. Walking according to God's wisdom necessarily means that we are not, that we're not also at the same time giving in to the desires of our flesh. Those two don't commingle. They cannot exist simultaneously. To walk in God's wisdom means not being enticed by the shallow and trivial and selfish and toxic things that lead to destruction. To walk in God's light is to walk in godly wisdom. And holy wisdom follows humility. Humility follows faith. And faith follows God's grace for us. Or to kind of take that the other way, what I'm trying to say there is it all starts with God's grace. That's the starting point. And if we trace it back, God's grace for us grants us the gift of faith. Through our faith, we are called to live in humility and in love. And when we do that, we are living in God's wisdom. And I think the fork in the road for us where where we have to kind of really get introspective and reflect is in the humility part. Are we willing to set down our pride, to bear our cross, to walk in humility with love for God, love for others? Proverbs mentions this too, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility goes before honor. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but wisdom is with the humble. Holy wisdom must first show humility spiritually before God. Second, show humility in our own mindset, how we think, what our perspective is and worldview is. And third, show humility in our actions towards other people. Living with God's wisdom transforms our hearts, our minds, and our actions. It changes us from selfish thinking to selfless thinking. And in humility, we seek to promote not ourselves, but the greater good in Christ, to be God's people, to share God's love, to impact the world around us, and to live for God's glory. Amen. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. I'm going to invite Emily up.
uh, so she can get prepared, but will you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we come before you um, often not thinking we need help, often thinking we know it all, often thinking we're so smart and have everything planned out. Lord, grant us grace this day to consider your ways. Lord, how can we be molded and shaped to follow you, to live in your wisdom and your truth with your love? Amen.